Good morning. You can do better. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I always find that exhausting when youth pastors do that to me. I'm like, no, I really can't. It's nine in the morning. I'm too tired for that. Uh, it's kind of weird for me. Uh, there are some faces out there that I recognize, but usually from the other side of a countertop. Um, and, you know, uh, and I'm sure for those of you who recognize me from that context, this might be a little bit weird for you. If I look familiar to you, it may be because I've told you to mix a drink until it's all one color, or I've asked you whether you wanted something in a cup or a cone at some point in recent memory. So in any case, uh, it's a unique privilege for me to be able to serve you not only physically with food and drink, but also this morning spiritually from the Word of God in Mark 6. Um, you know, before we be get into our passage in Mark 6, uh, let me begin by asking you a more basic question this morning. Why did Jesus come to earth to die? Right, this is a foundational question in our faith. And a common response to this question is we say, well, Jesus came to earth to die so that he could save sinners. And so that he could reconcile them to God. And this is, this is true, right? This is absolutely true. This is the gospel that allows us to gather here in worship, trusting and hoping and believing that God will bless us when we gather here in worship, rather than judge and curse us as our sins might make us deserve. But what I want to present to you this morning is that this saving and reconciling of sinners is just one part of the reason why Jesus came to earth to die. If you want it to be controversial, you could say that it wasn't even the main reason why Jesus came to earth to die. You see, Jesus Christ was sent by God to earth, not only to save sinners like you and me, but to inaugurate the kingdom of God. You see, ever since Genesis 1, way back in the garden, God has been building his kingdom. He has been establishing and building a place where his rule and reign would spread over all the earth, where his glory would fill the entire cosmos in both its fullness and its purity. And yet, for a long time, things have gone wrong. The rule of God has been rejected. His glory has been distorted. And so generations upon generations of the people of God have cried out and said, how long, O Lord? How long until you establish and build your kingdom? How long until all the things that belong to this kingdom of sin will end? And so you see, when, when Jesus comes, he comes not only to save you and me, but to inaugurate and establish the kingdom of God. And that's why John the Baptist, when preaching about Jesus and prophesying about Jesus, says, behold, the kingdom of God is near. You see, the birth of Jesus is a declaration from heaven that the kingdom of God had come, and Jesus was coming, yes, not, only, not just to save sinners like you and me, but also to save and reclaim an entire universe broken by sin. And we see this in his ministry. All right, with every miracle, Jesus is not just saving sinners, but he is declaring that he is the true king who has returned, and behold, he is making all things new and right. He is fixing the natural disaster of the lake, the sickness of the leper, the blindness of the beggar. He is repairing the corrupt heart of Zacchaeus, and he is ruling over the death of Talitha. In every miracle, Jesus is declaring that I am the king, and I have come to establish this kingdom. And it is about this kingdom 
And this good news that Jesus, our good teacher, is teaching us this morning. You see, when we read our passage today, we get a glimpse into the nature of this kingdom of God. So look with me today at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. This is the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. See, friends, this morning, when we read Mark chapter 6, we get a glimpse into the nature of the kingdom of God. More specifically, one of the things that we see is how the kingdom of God is built. This morning, I want to explore with you the question, how does God build his kingdom? And I want to explore that question by using three different questions to guide our thoughts together this morning. Number one, how is Jesus teaching people about how the kingdom of God is built? Number two, what is Jesus teaching people about how the kingdom of God is built? And number three, what is Jesus teaching us about how the kingdom of God is built? So how is he teaching the people? What is he teaching the people? And what is he teaching us? You see, Jesus is teaching the people here about the nature of the kingdom of God and how it's built, but he's using a method of teaching that we often experience in life, but we forget that our Lord loves to use. Jesus is teaching his people to learn about how the kingdom of God is built, not by giving them a lecture, not by teaching them with words, but by inviting them to experience it for themselves. He's inviting them to step into this moment of kingdom building that he's about to do. You see, Jesus has been teaching the masses all day, and eventually they get hungry. And so Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go and feed these people. And how do they react? They say, how? Jesus, we're broke. With what money? And even if we had enough money, there's nowhere to buy bread. There's nowhere where we could buy enough bread for all these people. They're going to have to go out to the surrounding villages on the outskirts and the countryside if they want bread. And here's the thing about the disciples' reaction. It's something that you and I have experienced really, really well, especially if you are a person who's trying to buy a home in today's market. 
right? If you want to see how the disciples reacted, just go ask somebody, why are you renting instead of buying a home in Northern Virginia? What will they tell you? How? With what money? And even if I had the money for 20% on a million dollar house, where is this house? I'm going to have to go out to Ashburn or South Riding or somewhere out in the countryside if I want to be able to afford a home here. But you see, here's the interesting thing, right? Jesus is asking them to do this knowing how they're going to react. He knows they're not going to be able to do this, and he knows that they're going to tell him that. And we know this because John tells us this story in his gospel. And in John 6, verse 6, he tells us that Jesus said this to test them because he already knew what he was going to do. You see, Jesus is inviting his disciple to a task that he knows is impossible for them as they are. It's a task that he knows that they cannot do, and yet he still invites them to do it. He is inviting his disciples into a moment of failure. He's inviting them to fail. Because he wants to teach them something about the nature of the kingdom of God and those who build it. You see, God doesn't always call us to success and victory. And the idea that he does is just the prosperity gospel wearing a different set of designer shoes. There is this false idea that says that if you just trust God and if you rely on him, then everything will work out. And if it doesn't work out, it means you didn't trust God enough or you didn't listen to him carefully enough or you didn't follow his leading enough. And what we see here is that sometimes God calls us not into success and purpose, but into failure and confusion. He doesn't always call us to comfort, but also to a cross, not only to a throne, but also to a tomb. And it's not because he's punishing us, but it's because he loves us and he wants to teach us something. And Jesus is calling his disciples into this moment of failure because there's something he wants to teach them. Which brings us to the second question, what is he trying to teach them? You see, here's a little bit of context for this moment in the lake. Prior to Mark 6, Jesus has just sent his disciples out on these missionary journeys. He put them up in pairs, and he sent them out to go around to all the different towns and all the different villages, and he tells them to preach the gospel of repentance. And so they go, they go on this trip, and they go on this journey, and they don't take anything with them. And then they come back, and they're reporting to Jesus and to each other everything that's happened. And it's immediately after that that we get to this moment. And here's the thing. Their ministry has been incredibly successful. During the time that they've been out there, they've been casting out demons. They've been healing the sick. They've been preaching the gospel. They have been incredibly successful in what Jesus has told them to do. But now he's telling them to do something different. He's telling them to go do something that he knows that they're going to fail at. Not because he doesn't know how they're going to react, but because he wants them to know how they're going to react. You see, Jesus, by commanding his disciples to feed the multitudes, what he's actually doing is he's subtly asking them a simple question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And he knows that for them the answer is no, I don't. And he's trying to show them that they don't. Because you see, here's the problem that the disciples have. 
Try as they might, they cannot see or think of a way to do the thing that Jesus is asking them to do. And they're trying. They're really trying. They sit there and they calculate, okay, roughly how many people are there and how much bread would we need to buy and how much would that cost? And they say 200 denarii or about half a year's salary. And they realize that, listen, even if we had that money, there would be nowhere for us to even buy that bread. This is an impossible dilemma. And so because they cannot think of a way to feed these people, they tell themselves and they tell Jesus, Lord, we cannot do this. You see, the problem with the disciples is that they're looking for clarity when Jesus is looking for faith. Let me say that one more time. The disciples' problem is that they are looking for clarity when Jesus is looking for faith. You see, the disciples, they're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it. And they need to figure that out before they can do what Jesus has called them to do. All right, I want you to notice the disciples' problem is not a lack of love or commitment or knowledge. They already know Jesus. They already love Jesus. They've already been following Jesus and obeying Jesus, but it is their need for clarity that is one of the last things that they will need to surrender if they want to have faith in Jesus. You see, clarity, it can be a good thing, but it can at times be the literal opposite of faith. Because clarity gives us the certainty and assurance about what we hope for because we can see it. But Hebrews 11 reminds us that faith is the assurance of the things we hope for and the conviction of the things that we cannot see. It is their desire and need for clarity that is getting in the way of their faith. We often think that Jesus wants to use his people to build his kingdom when really he wants to use his people's faith to build his kingdom. And there's a difference between the two. And we see that difference when we remember that there's another character to this story that we haven't talked about yet. It's a character so small that Mark doesn't even think to mention him. But John does. He goes unnamed and unknown in the record books of history. But John tells us that there in the crowd was a little boy. And that little boy had five loaves and two fish. And our passage says that there's 5,000 people, and that's just the men. And in John 6, we're told that the disciples, they look at this little boy's tiny offering, and the disciple Andrew says, what are they for so many people? You see, Andrew and the disciples needed clarity to obey Jesus, but here comes this little boy with nothing but five loaves of bread, two fish, and some faith, and he offers it up to Jesus, and he knows it's not enough. He knows it's insufficient. He knows that what he's giving to Jesus cannot possibly be enough for what Jesus needs to do, and yet here it is. Here is the abandoning of clarity and the offering of faith that Jesus has been waiting for. And what happens? Jesus takes his insufficient, not good enough offering and he blesses it. And he tells his disciples to hand it out among the people. And somehow, in spite of their doubt, that insufficient offering becomes more than enough. And suddenly the whole story changes. And it's no longer the story about 5,000 hungry people. It's a story of a miracle. Because one little boy was willing to abandon his clarity and step into faith. 
you know, I, I used to do ministry at a Korean church in New York, and um, I had this really interesting moment at the church where one day during a staff meeting, the senior pastor came up to me, and uh, he said, uh, Pastor Bay? And I said, oh, yeah, uh, yes, senior pastor. And he said, uh, I want you to preach for Tuesday's early morning prayer. And I said, interesting. Uh, in English? And he said, no, I, I, I want you to do that in Korean. And I said, mm, 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 senior pastor, mm. Uh, amazing opportunity, but I don't speak Korean. And he said, oh, I know. And I said, okay, uh, is this just one time? And he said, no, 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 from now on. So for three years, at five in the morning, I preached in Korean to a congregation of very, very holy Christians, right? And, and here's the thing. I was not good. I was terrible. I was awful, okay? You know how I knew I was bad? I started going to other guys' early morning prayer sermons, and they're all native Korean speakers, and what I realized is they had to earn their amens from the congregation. They had to say something really good. But then I realized for me, I just needed to say something intelligible. And I learned that because one day I was praying at the service, and I said, Lord, we've gathered here this morning. And the whole congregation burst out in, Amen. It was terrible. I was speaking some wacky, janky Korean. And, you know, I, I went through that for three years. And I knew when I was getting better, but I also knew how bad I must have been because there was this one dear mother in the faith who had been at the church, and she had been coming to every last one of my sermons. She never missed it. Must have been the healthiest woman on earth. And after about a year of this, one day she comes up to me after the service and she says the same thing to me that she's always said. She said, Pastor Bay, thank you so much for your sermon. I was very blessed. And I said the same thing. Thank you so much, Kwanzanim, right? This lady has been saying this to me for a full year. And every time after I'm done preaching, I hear her praying for me so loudly, probably because of how bad I was, right? She's like, Chia! Help Pastor Bay, he's so weak. Right? And so after a full year, this lady, she comes up to me and she says this, and I say, oh, thank you so much, Kwanzanim. Uh, I appreciate it. And then she says, you know, normally I'm just blessed by your effort, but today I'm also blessed by your words. And I don't really know how to take that. And here's the thing, right? I wish that I could tell you that after a full three years of doing that, revival broke out. Or I wish I could tell you that I'm really good at preaching in Korean now. I'm not. I still have no idea why I did that. I still have no idea why people came. But there it was, this moment, where the Lord is inviting us to step into a moment of faith and abandon our clarity. How could God possibly use my janky Korean to bless his people? And yet there it was, the kingdom of God calling Now, I want to highlight something for us this morning in the passage. I, I want us to notice that the disciples are lacking faith. They don't have it. Right? Because if they had it, they would have done what this little boy did. Or at the very least, they would not have minimized his offering. 
But do you see how their lack of faith does not disqualify them from participating in the miracle? Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't tell them to go repent and come back when they believe and find their faith. No, he takes them as they are and he says, come, come my faithless disciples. And despite their unbelief, he uses them as his hands and feet to do this miracle and deliver the food to the masses. He commands them to be a part of this miracle that he's doing and he invites them not just to witness this miracle, but to be a part of this miracle. And in doing so, he is teaching them how to find and have faith. What we see is Jesus is committed to teaching faith to his faithless disciples who fail his test. So what does all of this teach us about the kingdom of God and those who build it? You see, Mark 6 tells us that Although ultimately it is Jesus who builds and establishes his own kingdom, Mark 6 tells us that Jesus loves and delights to use faithless failures to build his kingdom. Mark 6 tells us that the kingdom of God is built by those who abandon their clarity and embrace faith, and it is built by those who are learning to find faith in their failure. You see, Mark 6 tells us a painful and hard truth that Jesus is more committed to our faith than he is to our success or our comfort or our peace of mind. Mark 6 reminds us that there are some lessons that we only learn when we fail because some of us are so gifted and we're so talented and we're so resourceful and we've been blessed with so much that if God never called us to fail, we would never learn faith because why would we ever pray when we can fix every problem on our own? You see, Mark 6 tells us that Jesus is committed to building his kingdom through those who lack faith. It tells us that his disciples are those who are learning faith and trust, not those who have already learned it. So this morning, if you find yourself wrestling with doubt, wondering and unsure of whether or not God is truly good or truly real or truly working in your life, then you are one of those that he calls his disciples. And he is committed to teaching you and using you. He has not given up on you. Jesus is teaching us this morning that the kingdom of God is not built only by ministry professionals who have the right degrees or the right letters after their degrees and the right theology. The kingdom of God is not built by super Christians who have deep faith and deep conviction. It is built by those who are insufficient but have found the one who has, and offered themselves to the king who is all sufficient. You may feel weak this morning. You may feel run down and worn. You may know that you are lacking in holiness and maturity. You may have crawled through these doors wrestling with the weight of trauma and the crushing burden of shame. And if that's you, you are exactly the kind of person and yours is exactly the kind of offering that Jesus has been waiting to receive. Jesus is eagerly waiting to receive your broken, not enough, insufficient offering, and he delights in taking it and blessing it and saying, this, this is more than enough to build my kingdom. Come and see what I can do with your not good enough life. Friends, do you know 
that the kingdom of God is built by countless people and offerings like that widow in the temple, unnamed, unseen, and unusable by everyone except our Lord Jesus. Do you know that the gospel is good news, not just because you and I are saved, but because it means that God is building his kingdom here, and he will one day complete it, and when he does, he will fix everything that is wrong in this world. Do you know that the gospel is good news because it says that there is a kingdom coming where the wine overflows and the party never ends, where there is always an abundance of food? Do you know that the gospel is good news because it says that there is a kingdom coming where the lame walk and it is the poor and the weak and the lowly that are blessed? Do you know that the gospel is good news because it says there is a kingdom coming and it is finally, finally here? And it is calling you to build that kingdom with him today. Do you know that that is the good news of the gospel? You see, we so often fall into the trap of thinking that if we could just reach some life stage or some point in our careers, then then we'll finally be able to serve God. If I could just get married or just pay off this mortgage, or just retire, or just get promoted and make partner, or if I could just send all my kids away to college, or make sure they all get married. And the problem with this is that somehow that stage in life, that point in our careers, is somehow, it's always somewhere but here. It's always somewhere later, but never now. But God is inviting us to build his kingdom now when he's calling us to be a part of it today, not because we're ready, not because we're sufficient, not because we're good enough. He knows that we aren't, but because he is. This morning, the gospel of Jesus is calling out to us and it is asking us, do you trust me? Do you trust that if we will give him what little we have, he can use us and use our lives to build that kingdom. Not because our offerings and gifts are enough, but because we know and we believe and we trust that Jesus is. What are the areas and parts of your life today where you need to abandon clarity and pursue faith? Look, I'm not saying that we should never want clarity or that God never gives it or that it's always bad when we have it. But if we're honest, I think we can admit that for most of us, clarity is an idol by which we say, like Adam and Eve, I must know what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. I have to know how I'm going to do something before I can go do something. I have to know how I'm going to be used by God before I can be sent by God. But you see, this morning, Jesus is inviting us into the freedom of saying, Lord, I don't know what will happen. I don't know how you can use me. I don't even know if you can use me, but I trust you. And I trust that you're alive and working in me, so here I am. I don't know all of your unique situations and circumstances. I do know that over 90% of you are probably consultants for a government contractor. Welcome to NOVA. 
But I do know that for each and every one of us, there are things that we could offer, places that we could serve, people that we could minister to, and things that we could pray for. I don't know what those things are for you, but I do know that this morning, God is calling you to be a part of this miracle that he is doing. That the perfect kingdom of God could be built by imperfect, broken people like you and me. He doesn't call you to know. He doesn't call you to be sure. He just calls you to step into faith and trust him. So won't you join me as we pray to the Lord, asking not that he would give us greater clarity in our lives, but deeper faith. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you today confessing that we have been a people who have been obsessed with knowing, but Lord, we pray that you would teach our hearts deeper faith, the deeper faith that says we don't know and that's okay, that we just want to be used by you and we want to trust that you can use us. We don't know how, we don't know in what way, we don't know in what manner, but we pray that you would use us. So God, we pray that you would send your spirit into our lives and open our eyes to the places where we can go right now, the little steps that we can take, not because we figured it all out, not because we know exactly what cause or what place or what mission you're calling us to, but God, help us to step out into faith and know that you are using us. So we're so thankful for this miracle. We're so thankful that the kingdom of God is not something that you demand that we build for you, but something that you say that you are building for us and you invite us to be a part of it, not because we're qualified, because you love to use imperfect, faithless, broken people. And so, Lord, it's with that heart that we come to you asking for your grace. It's with that heart that we come to you praying and asking. Use us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You know, meal.